Why does Scotland import 70% of our fruit and vegetables? When tomatoes are 95% water, it means that we're importing water from Spain and Morocco, which have got massive drought problems and uh, causing ourselves food insecurity problems, empty shelves, when the solution is there, what Iceland, Finland and Russia are doing, glasshouse production using the massive renewable energy reserves that Scotland is awash with. Why can't we just get on with it? We asked Pete Ritchie from Nourish Scotland. We also look at the SNP leadership runners and riders as they've uh, trotted out uh, during this week's hustings and look at the proposals coming from the British government about utterly outlawing people that come off small boats across the channel. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this week's The Leslie Reddick podcast. And before we get started, don't you flash yourselves folks, we will be getting to the SNP leadership contest and its hustings. But, but, we're going to begin with a rather startling fact that uh, Leslie, you tweeted about uh, salad in imports and exports of food in supermarkets, etc. And it's gone tonto on Twitter. It has. You threatened at the start of this you were going to tell a Fred Macaulay joke about salads. What's happened to it? Have okay, you it? Right. No, no, no. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I was awaiting the invitation because when I mentioned the dread words Fred Macaulay, there was a stony silence. Right. So Fred Macaulay's joke is, uh, well, love our fish and chips up in Scotland. Yeah. And sometimes they'll leave the chips overnight so they get cald. And that's what we cry a salad. <laughs> <laughs> I should say that extra laugh there, that actually was quite good. <laughs> um, uh, that, that's Pete Ritchie, actually, who's joining us. Uh, Pete Ritchie is the chief executive of Nourish Scotland. And this will make sense in a minute because the, the, the column that I wrote was basically just, well, pointing out many things, but just especially saying why on earth, when we come to food shortages, we're importing tomatoes from Spain and Morocco. Tomatoes are 95 percent water. Water in Spain and Morocco is incredibly precious and going to get more so given climate change. It's utterly crazy because, you know, it's a climate damaging thing to do and, you know, weighty taking tomatoes in. And here's the kicker. We have everything we need here to be growing all sorts of salad, uh, vegetables and, you know, market garden stuff, however you want to cry it, uh, in glass houses as Twitter has has you know, eloquently come back with uh, Scotland used to blinking do. Um, it, we have the energy to do it. It's happening across lots of northern countries, Finland, Russia. In fact, if you watch the Iceland film that I did in 2019, we visit glass houses in Iceland. These guys had the, you know, the moment of awakening there after the financial crash in 2008, where their economy totally tanked. Their currency was almost worthless for a while. And um, they had to switch from imported tomatoes to producing their own using the geothermal energy, which is abundant there. But even so, and despite the fact that their energy is a fraction of ours, even in normal pre-crisis times, um, the the government in Iceland still subsidised the energy needed to get the glass houses operating and creating food security for Iceland um, just the one that we visited produced that one place alone, those glass houses produced 17 uh, percent in 2019 
of all the tomatoes used in Iceland. And that's a, a lot more than the population because the number of tourists and visitors to Iceland quadruples the population in summer. So the question is, when we're sitting here with abundant resources of renewable energy, and of course, there's a whole load of tweets that have come back to me on that because it's there, but not sort of gettable because of uh, Westminster control over energy and the grid and so on. But we've got it. We've also got lots of energy trapped on islands, uh, northern and western, because of the lack of blinking subsea connectors to connect them to the grid. So are there possibilities there? Um, and we've got brownfield sites. We've got uh, we've got the amount of clean water in lots of places. That's also an essential thing of having good tomato production. So why the hell are we not producing salads here? Uh, and I called Pete Ritchie, an old pal of mine, um, who has joined us now, uh, who has been a farmer until very recently and leads Nourish Scotland and was pretty much the mover behind a thing called the Good Food Nation Bill, which we'll come to as well. And so, um, may, forgive me if I'm just now sort of strolling into um, directing traffic in this pack, which is normally oh. your thing. But anyway. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm delighted. Pete. Um, can you just come in on explaining, you know, what the possibilities are for us here and why, you know, wh why on earth we've got a situation where the Royal the Botanic Gardens apparently received an energy subsidy this winter. But people with glass houses, you know, market gardeners, horticulturalists, however you want to call them, didn't they? Well, I mean, I can't explain UK energy policy to you, Leslie, in this podcast, but what I do know is that horticulture in the UK and in Scotland, indeed, has been a sort of hidden secret and undervalued issue. You know, people talk about agriculture on the news all the time, but actually the horticulture sector hasn't been a subject of policy interest for such a long time. And that's partly because they don't get subsidies from the government, unlike other parts of farming. So it doesn't become such a hot potato issue. But we have a fantastic horticulture industry in Scotland growing masses about about a third of the UK soft fruit. We grow carrots, we grow broccoli, we grow cauliflower, we grow peas. We grow nobody really knows about the horticulture sector in Scotland. But it's 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 great. What we haven't had is what we had in the Netherlands post war, which was this sort of deliberate attempt by government to bring horticulture industry, the academics in universities and government policy together to really create a world leading industry. And that's that technology that's being exported all over the world, including, as you say, to Iceland. And there's no reason why that technology couldn't be used in Scotland to produce our own Mediterranean veg, which is what we love to eat. It's good for our diets. It's good for our health. It brings us joy and it's completely possible. And we worked out, I think, on the back of an envelope that something like 18 hectares, that doesn't sound a lot, it, you know, people have different ideas of area, a very small area of land would grow all the, all the Mediterranean veg for the Highland region. And as you say, we've got energy we can't even use there at the moment because it's locked up. So there's all sorts of possibilities for doing this. And it ties in so well to the Good Food Nation, but also things like the Green Skills Agenda, actually training people up to run those glass houses because it's a skill people can learn it's all year round employment and it just makes complete sense. As you say, when we're importing, you know, a river's worth of water from southern Europe um, for our tomatoes. Being, a, being a, an urban type, 
what sort of area is a hectare and what would 18 hectares look like? Just to get, so I can oh, get Kings, you always do these things in terms of football pitches, don't you? Yes, and that's, that was don't, don't start him, don't start him, Pete. Just keep going, <laughs> keep going. I need football pitches. I think a hectare is about a football pitch, something like that. I should really know the answer to these questions, shouldn't I? Um, but I remember, you know, Dundee is something like 6,000 hectares, you know, so that's the city of Dundee. And certainly on an area of the city of Dundee, you could grow more than enough um veg for the whole of scotland but actually much smaller than that probably you know glass houses are phenomenally productive when i was on a study visit to the netherlands they talked about it was something like 45 kilograms per square meter which is 450 you know it's it's if you think of 45 kilograms on every square meter glass house and that was a typical yield so you can grow a phenomenal amount of, of fruit we're going to end up having to do a lot of translations here but the other thing is that, that you said to me is that glass houses need just a tenth of the water that's used in open fields which is stunning oh absolutely that's right yeah and i mean it, you know and and they're lovely places too you don't need pesticides um because they're sort of controlled and you have bumblebees hanging around fertilizing things i mean it, it's a you know, it's a nice place to be. And as I say, it's all year round jobs. They're nice jobs, you know, much, much better jobs in lots of ways than some of the some of the other horticultural jobs, which can be picking leeks at three o'clock in the morning and for the supermarket, which isn't a lot of fun. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, this is what I should have said at the beginning of this. I just tweeted, you know, some of the information from this column and more than anything that I've done recently, whether it's on SNP leadership candidates or anything else, this currently has had one, 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 uh, nearly 2,000 retweets and 154,000 views, which is this is connecting with something. And lots of the responses that were coming from people were so sort of woeful, you know, about, for example, the fact that the Clyde area had been completely covered with glass houses and that subsidies, cost of energy particularly, had just caused all of that to come crashing down. Now, what do you think we could be doing now, given the problems that Scotland doesn't directly control energy? Uh, how could we be tackling this now? Because this, what you've just suggested there, you know, a, a relatively tiny wee area could produce the vegetables for the whole highland is completely mind-blowing. So how do we get started? Okay, so where to start? And you're right, the, the, the Clyde Valley... People can remember that it's within living memory. I mean, it's it's slightly younger than Fred McCauley's joke. You know, it's like. People, <laughs> oh, you know. So, 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 yeah, it's not impossible. And and again, the collapse of that industry was because of the oil price spike in, in the 1970s. And, and that sent things over the edge as far as the, the, the Clyde Valley was concerned. So we have this opportunity with the shift to renewables that's happening all around us to see horticulture as one of our green growth sectors. You know, it's just, a, it's a way of seeing it. You know, it's part of the just transition. We're moving away from oil and gas. We're moving towards other jobs in renewable energy and glasshouse production is one of them. You know, it's a no brainer. So, I mean, I would but, start- But the trouble you know, is that that energy currently just, you know, has to connect to the grid and then sits, you know, going into the Westminster Exchequer essentially how can we, you know, pivot that to and, and we're, as, as, as the Nationals pointing out this week, uh, in fact, the Herald, all, all the papers are pointing out projections that Scots are going to end up paying as domestic consumers a thousand quid more than English people. You know, we're, we're, it's not skewed in our favour, is it, our energy prices? 
no, no, it's really galling to be living under a wind turbine and paying more for your energy than someone in another part of the country. And I, I completely get that. It's insane. We need to change that way that we price energy from the grid. And I think the European Union is actually getting to an agreement on that, which is really interesting at the moment. Um, there's also other sources of energy, obviously, in Scotland, you know, part tidal and wave. And there's also, um, you know, all the energy that's trapped in the deep coal mines. There's loads and loads and loads of energy in Scotland that we could be we could be using. But the thing is, we need to have a plan because these industries don't just start by somebody going, oh, well, I'm going to do this. All the supply chain issues, as people point out on Twitter, the supermarkets have you know, very sharp pricing policies. So if you just try and go in and sell to supermarkets from day one without a long-term support for this industry as a whole, you, you could well lose a lot of money. So you need to, we need to decide this is something Scotland wants to do and we're going to invest in the skills. The first thing I'd do is, is start a master's programme, you know, get in touch with the you know, universities in the Netherlands and say, could you run a master's programme for us so that we can actually teach people how to do this? When I was speaking to the, the glasshouse owner in Iceland, that was how they got into the thing. They did a course on glasshouse yeah. production and then they thought we could do this because our farm's not making a lot of money. If we did this instead, we could make some money. You know, it's as simple as that. So you, I think you start with the training. At the same time, you develop, you know, proper feasibility studies, looking at the different sources of renewable energy, the possible locations of glasshouses, and actually have a little bit of planning for how we might do this. It's not impossible. But the key thing is we're going to need people who want to do this. So that farmers, growers and new farmers have a chance to get into this because you don't need to own a big bit of land. You just need to have the skills to to produce, you know, really good fruit and veg and to market them. You know, you set up, you get the agricultural organization people to set up a co-op quite early on in the process, which is, again, a feature of Iceland that they're all marketing through the co-op. You know, the bits of the jigsaw are not that complicated. You know, the energy, you need the skills, you need the cooperation. You know, but you need the intent, you need the policy intent to say, you know, one of the things about Scotland being good feed nation is we're going to produce more of what we eat and we're going to eat more of what we produce. And that means whether it's brownfield sites in Glasgow or remote sites on Uist or Westray, you know, let's get glass houses in place, creating all the year round employment, local food supply chains, you know, and food security. It, it makes complete sense. And the Good Food Nation bill that passed last year and was the product of seven years of work by you and uh, lots of other people, but very principally you, Pete. Um, would that make it possible for a council, for example, to say, OK, we've got your six hectares or whatever it is of uh, of land. Um, we can essentially put that in. We can try to get some homegrown renewables. I mean, if we're looking at Dundee, it is almost a solar city. It's sitting twinkling in the sunshine at the moment. Um, you know, we could put some sort of mixed renewable package together that we own and we could essentially just create one site with a massive amount of glass in the same way as people near me and across this country are getting subsidies for putting solar farms in. Could could that not be put forward as a prototype by a go ahead city now? Yeah, absolutely right, Leslie. The Good Food Nation plan, bill asks councils to make local food plans. Dundee, you're not just sitting on solar energy, but you're also sitting on energy from the incineration plant, which some people find really controversial. But the fact is that's putting out you know, energy into the system, you know, every day, which could be used for something like this. And, you know, some of the skeptics on Twitter saying, well, sometimes the wind doesn't blow, sometimes, the, you know, the, the sun doesn't shine. But that that incineration plant is putting out energy into the local grid and it could be used for this, you know, tomorrow. Well, maybe not tomorrow, but the week after next, 
you know, the, so so the ingredients are all there. And what you need, as you say, is a go ahead city or go ahead, you know, organization to go, OK, we're going to do this. But I do think at the same time, you need the Scottish government to be saying this is part of our long term plan and we're going to invest in the skills and the infrastructure and the cooperation so that this doesn't just become a one off. Um, you know, and I think the example from the Netherlands is really important here because, you know, you do need that a bit of government vision and a collaboration both with the industry, but also with the universities, with the researchers um, that are doing these things. And yeah, I, I mean, I went to the Scottish government for a statement on this. Um, they've got a food security unit that's being set up. Um, they're investing two million quid in vertical farming, which is a bit different from glass houses in that it's almost just r- r- well rakes of, uh, of of seedlings essentially that can be started really quickly. And again, that's another way to do stuff very very fast uh, with minimal amounts of, of of land. And they spend fifty million quid a year already on food related research. So essentially, what's missing? Okay, I I think and you're right. Vertical farming can complement more sort of expensive greenhouse production by producing the seedlings, and you know, so the two things go together well. And for things like if you want to produce a lot of basil in a small space, vertical farming's definitely a you know a great way to go. But it you know obviously does use more energy because it's not using any of the sun's energy. And although you know we don't get as much sun as Italy, we get you know, we get quite a lot of sun during the year that we can we can use as well. So the two things can complement each other. I don't think anything's stopping us doing this, but, it, you know, we need to sort of create this sense of this is possible. There is both a market opportunity, but also great environmental opportunity here to reduce the footprint of our food. I don't know if you saw, but Lidl yesterday joined the group of, of, of supermarkets that have agreed to reduce the, the footprint of the UK shopping basket by half in the next 10 years. You know, this is exactly the sort of technology can help do that um, because and it doesn't just reduce the carbon footprint. It reduces the water footprint. And as you know, water is as big an issue in the world as, as carbon, you know, and we're, we're constantly being told that climate change is going to make droughts worse. We don't want to be sitting in the next drought in two or three years time going, oh, where have the tomatoes gone? You know, in two years, three years time, we want to have an appreciable supply of, of glasshouse production in Scotland. And in 10 years time, I think we should be, you know, looking at being like Iceland, 80, 80, 90 percent self-sufficient in these things. There's no reason why we can't do this. Never a man to miss a, a tabloid headline. Is, are there any green shoots of this going on anywhere? Are any cities cooperating together? Any local authorities? Uh, is there any sign of the Scottish government, anyone in the Scottish government, even any of the three leadership candidates, talking about uh, talking about this development? Oh, well, and I mean, just to say, of course, there are green shoots. You know, there are people doing it already. You know, there's, as Leslie will know, Jim Shanks down at Standhill in the borders has been growing tomatoes for years and actually doing a great job of using um, energy from woodship to grow his tomatoes. And, you know, there's greenhouses up on Westray, there's people doing little bits of this around Scotland. So don't want anybody phone in and say, oh, we're doing this already. Absolutely. But we need to we need to upscale. And and upscaling does need, I think, this sort of government leadership setting a direction of, of travel. Um, in terms of leadership candidates, I'll let you segue into that yourselves, but I think it's very much part of this sort of green skills just transition agenda. If we're going to move Scotland into a, a low carbon high nature world in the future you know this is 
just a small part of the new industries that we need to be creating and investing in um, so that we've got a brighter future. And if you're, you know, it's bad enough getting the empty shelves in Edinburgh, but if you're up on Euston and the ferry doesn't turn up, you know, you really do have no tomatoes. And it, that's something where certainly in the, in the island communities, the remote parts of Scotland, you know, eye-watering prices for fresh fruit mm. and veg and the opportunity to just grow them on your doorstep. We should be seizing that. Yeah, totally. Like, uh, now, the things I was going to ask, finally, supermarkets, I understand in France, they're required to, to have 20% of their produce sourced locally. And <clears throat> procurement, massive, massive, massive thing. Pat and I have done a special on this about community wealth building. But basically, the every hospital, university, school, you know, the public sector, uh, particularly, they're all choosing where to source their food. Now, I know supermarkets are difficult, but between them, do you think there's a way that procurement could be, again, the Scottish government says it's issuing new guidance on that. I mean, I, OK, I'm not in this policy world, but guidance sounds a bit. Mm. Uh, are we going to get a change in procurement so people actually buy locally with all the difficulties that will create for them? Because it will be more you know, work than just signing off one big contract to get it from, you know, wherever. Yeah, I mean, the Community Wealth Building Bill is a great example of that, because, as you say, in one area, you can get the local authorities, the health board, the universities, the Scottish government, the museums, you know, the wider public sector together into a joint procurement thing and procure together, because, you know, it makes sense for some contracts to have big national things, you know, for software, because software doesn't cost a lot to move around the country, Having it local doesn't really matter in the same way. But with food production, there's a real value to community wealth building from actually having integrated local procurement and saying, OK, how much can we already source of what we need? How can we adapt our menus for local produce? But also, where do we need to invest in our local supply chains so that between us, we can procure more of what we need from the local area? And as you say, this is done in other parts of Europe not just in France, but in Finland, in Iceland. You know, there are other places where they say the benefits of the local economy are really considerable. And we could build into Community Wealth Building Bill a requirement for local authorities, health boards and others, one, to procure together, and two, to, to build the cost of the value to the local economy into their purchasing decisions. So we're not just driven by shaving the last penny off the price of a mm. kilo of onions and bringing them in from, you know, whether it's the Netherlands or Morocco or, you know, Turkey or somewhere else. It's nothing wrong with importing. We need to have food trade. But there are points at which you say, look, actually, it's better for everybody and it's better for the planet. If so we can produce wealth, things locally, we buy them locally. Yeah. So the community wealth building bill is still there to be amended to toughen this up. It's it's ready. It's ready for this sort of thing to toughen up right, the duty good. to procure and, sustainably. And supermarkets, 20 percent local. Yeah, we have, as everybody said in this crisis, a really weird supermarket model in the UK. It's quite distinct, quite different from many parts of Europe in some respects. I think we should do that. But I think we should also, you know, cut out some of that in the supply chain. You know, the honest veg box has been a middle class sort of thing for too many years actually getting fruit and veg direct to people, whether that's a box at the convenience store or a box to the house or a box to the community centre or whatever, we can shift veg directly to people. And mm -hmm. that can actually get a better return for farmers and more connection between people and farmers in where they source their veg. So we can do that too.
The Veds don't have to go to a central depot, get packed, get put on a supermarket shelf. People drive to supermarkets, pick them up. Actually, there are easy ways of getting Veds to people. OK, and last, last one. Come right back to Pat's joke, because the trouble is, I, I was saying this to you, Pete, that my mother grew up in Wick. And they just didn't really. Well, they got some fresh vegetables, but they didn't get any fresh fruit. So she was had a, a lifelong scunner, basically, about fruit, <laughs> apart from strawberries that she liked. And, you know, the standing joke was every year there would be an orange at the bottom of our stockings at Christmas, mm-hmm. which we would all cheerfully throw away. Right <laughs> Now, that back to that idea that the, the closest that Scots get to a salad is a cold chip the next day. Is this and, and we coming right back to why we've got a situation that we don't subsidise, you know, essentially salad and Mediterranean vegetables. Is there some sort of scunner there that needs to be overcome? Oh, listen, it's too long for this podcast. You know, we always go back to repeal of the Corn Laws and why the UK has a cheap food policy, <laughs> you know, and the horticultural lack of subsidy has been a part of why they haven't been so high profile. We've relied on, you know, as Tim Lang always says, a food policy, which is leave it to Tesco. We are now having to think much more proactively about where do we want to get our food cut from? How does that protect the environment and tackle climate change? And how does it create local wealth building? And yes, and how does it improve our diets? Because not all of us, you know, are veg lovers, you know, and there's a big long story about why that's particularly issue in Scotland. But, you know, this isn't a question for WIC, but when we industrialized in the 19th century, you know, we, we created food deserts where there was no access to fresh fruit and veg. So a lot of that historical culture what we would have eaten by way of veg in scotland went out the window so we've got we've got a long road and that's partly what the good food nation act is about it's about trying to build rebuild a distinctively scottish diverse inclusive food culture that that takes the best of what we've got in scotland adds to it and crucially makes it available to everybody so everybody can actually have a healthy diet and and not just a few my God, Pete Ritchie for leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't wish that on you at all, actually, Pete. But anyway, well, look, that that's fabulous. I mean, I'm sure it just provokes more questions than, than answers. But um, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, look at the website. There's an email address there. And I do know there's lots of people already doing this. It'd be so nice to hear from a city or a town or a village that deci- decides to just go for it and try and move ahead. But anyway, meantime, Pete, Um, Go on your merry way. And thanks very much for explaining all of that. Thanks a lot, Leslie. Thanks a lot, Pat. Cheers. Bye bye. Cheers. James. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And see, you know, the thing is, I was listening to the SNP leadership hustings in Dumfries last night. And actually, just to show you how easy it is to make mistakes with stuff online, um, I was trying to listen on my phone in in the car as I was coming back from my last four hour stint in the library writing this book um, and, and trying to raise the, the sound on it. I actually ended up liking the thing five times, <laughs> which, <laughs> Ooh, which ooh, might have looked to the organisers, you know, it's yes. easily done. But um, there was a question, given that it was Dumfries, about land issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was... Good, good stuff said by all the candidates. Uh, everyone had turned it from land generally into housing. And mm-hmm. of course, that is one of the biggest problems. But actually, the question was about land. And um, Yusuf did quite a sterling sort of response and said that, you know, we hadn't got anywhere near tackling land reform properly, which is a bit like, OK, you've been in that government, honey. But 
he also said, you know, what we really need is a land reform bill, another one. And the thing is, there is one on the go at the moment. And this is what, you know, maybe this is us segueing in. And here I am doing the leading again, Pat. This is so very wrong. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It's great. <laughs> I'm just like here. a chill thing. This is what's striking me about listening to the, you know, to the hustings so far. And then, you know, is that if I'd been anywhere near that um, or anybody had been able to reply who knew their onions, I can see this thread continuing through the whole podcast, they would have come back and said, well, here's a little bit of news, you know, flashing around here. You've got a blinking land reform bill. Yes. So is it going to cut, cut it or is it not? Do you know anything about it? And I mean, to be fair, I could well have just not quite heard, given that I was having these sound problems, you know, a really stunning bit of final repost on this issue. But I don't think I did. So we've got, you know, hustings that actually, though, having listened to the rest of it, I, I thought everybody, you know, it was actually pretty good. And it was a lot better, the quality of responses and interaction and everything, um, than all the kind of projections about mm -hmm. the candidates it just is that it doesn't end up getting grounded into what the Scottish government's already doing, because there are too few people who know precisely in their subject areas where the weaknesses are. There's too little capacity for questioners to come back and really interrogate the, the, the questioners. The chairs are generally making sure that they give equal time to people so that there isn't accusations of bias. So it basically gets fairly unchallenged, you know, questions. And of course, if someone has been lucky enough to start off a response, then the person who's third along the list that's trying to kind of find a bit of a variety is really struggling. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what makes I mean, it's a, it's a shame we can't do this after tonight's podcast. We did consider leaving the podcast. But Pat is such a blinking good granddad that he is locked into his granddaddery yes. tomorrow and uh, we, we can't do it. But tonight's uh, STV debate will be very interesting because it will get beyond. I mean, doubtless it will not discuss land reform, sadly, but um, it will get beyond, you know, the, the kind of limits of the hustings. Though I'd say so far, you know, they have been OK and they've not been any worse than any other party, which is what you have to compare this with, because uh, this is not like a leader of the free world. This is a leader of a political party. And, um, you know, they're talking to their own folk. Yeah, because I mean, I, I, I was intrigued because I watched the Martin Geisler's uh, uh, interview with Kate Forbes on Sunday, and he was stressing this is internecine warfare. This is really bad stuff. It's really awful. And she was saying, no, well, actually, it's been really full of respect. And it was, it was emphasising this almost as if there hadn't been a recent Conservative Party election where they were actually tearing lumps out of each other on a regular basis. You know, and it was standing up, they're saying, this is utter nonsense, says Rishi Sunak. You're going to ruin the country if you go ahead with these uh, ridiculous plans for uh, cutting taxes and you know, for your so-called growth. They, they, were, they were knocking lumps out of each other. And from what I gather, because I, due to technical difficulties, the laptops, we were both suffering from them, um, I, I actually just had to follow with the text that was coming up in the National. And again, it just seemed to me, I picked up on that whole thing that you said as well, that they very quickly moved after uh, Hunza Yusuf's reply, which was another land reform bill. They moved quickly on to housing, which I think seemed to miss the whole point about the the uh, the monopoly on uh, ownership of land. But I did find it interesting that Kate Forbes said that one of the reasons 
the major reason she joined the SNP was because of the monopoly ownership of land. Yes, <clears throat> yes, uh, doubtless. And yet Sky has got one of the biggest homeless problems in Scotland, as I know, yes. because my cousin was made homeless and evicted. And, um, you know, there's all that land sitting there. And, uh, you know, it's, it seems very difficult to kind of come up with practical solutions, although many communities, as ever, are stepping into the breach with people setting aside seven years of their lives to become experts in absolutely all the minute details to do with how you manage to qualify for funding. And to be fair to her, Kate mentioned she, she obviously knows about some of that stuff and comes to mind particularly. Um, but, you know, this has been highlighted. In fact, at points I thought I was listening to an entire column I wrote about just these problems. And it's great that that's being picked up. But what are they, what's going to be done about it? Um, you know, that this, if we're really, really saying that our, you know, it's, on the one hand, it's very good that community housing trusts, and I remember us discussing this in the podcast, yes. these are the guys who know how to match up the, the, the local small availability of land, because there's always patches of land somewhere. It's just you don't know about that from a city 400 miles away. Locals know where the patches and availability is. And so the local community trust can go in. And, and manage to find opportunities, then they need to match that up with the funding. I see, for example, another thing we talked about, which is the availability of modular housing that's being uh, constructed uh, on the causeway between Barra and Vattersea by Modular West. Uh, brilliant um, innovation there is being hooked up the coast and is now uh, building the Smart Clachan on South Uist, uh, which will be fantastic because that is all in-house, if you like. It's all island. And it's not taking any of the, uh, you know, the, the problems on board that come with trying to ship big units up and build in the rain, the cold, I mean, the blooming beast from the north that we're about to have today. It's all done in side and then constructed in situ. So there's plenty of stuff that's going on. And the community trusts are the ones who should be absolutely on that. They need to just have far more support and not be working in the margins. But at least good to hear that being showcased. But I still find it difficult when I hear people talking about, you know, problems that are just so urgent that Sky still can't fill its NHS vacancies. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how bad it is. And the sense of urgency I, I always find across Scotland is is kind of missing. I mean, just to finish my little Highland peon here, uh, actually, there's a piece by Brian Wilson um, this today in the Herald. I read it. So the rest of you don't have to. Which is, you know, absolutely mashing the SNP's record on all sorts of things. But he makes a, a point um, about the the uh, Northern Airports body, Hyle, mm -hmm. uh, Highlands and Islands Airports Limited, which is a, a government quango <clears throat> and apparently has no Islanders or Highlanders on the board. Now, could that be, he asks, why Hyle has decided that when its staff um, put in for a pay rise like everybody else has done, uh, the unions did, and um, their response has basically been to cancel all flights for six weeks to the islands. Oh, jeez. You know, on the basis that it's just too hard for them to be able to manage um, a kind of roster because, you know, people might be dipping in or out or whatever. So it's simpler for people to know where they stand and just cancel everything for six weeks. <laughs> now, as, as, as Brian notes, that has actually brought the transport minister sharply into the negotiations he suggests that she wasn't in it in a way that other sectors have had ministers involved mm -hmm. right from the get go. 
you'd have to say just by the by that that is a slight backhanded compliment to those ministers and that Scottish government. Actually. Yes, it is. You know, but still, let's not go there because I don't want to kind of, you know, suggest that Brian is in any way being supportive <laughs> of the Scottish government. But it's just not good enough. And it's strange how it is the Highlands that suffer from this to have Cal Mac sitting there as another sort of Scottish government owned quango, which is just continuing not to fire on on any cylinders and had their their CEO, Robbie Drummond, on the Sunday show, um, essentially saying, oh, you know, it's been awfully difficult for us getting pelters and so on. There's six ferries coming Some, you know, those two that are sitting in Ferguson's might, you know, will they come? Will they not come? Um, and as if as if the kind of need to replace ferries that only last 25 years are cropped, crept up on everyone by surprise. Yes. Um, and as if you might not ha- want to have really new thinking about the kind of ferries that you're commissioning, which, again, um, many yes. people think is the core problem with CalMac, because lots of other seaboard countries manage to refurbish their ferries far more simply than this, because they basically buy stuff off the shelf instead of trying to get construction of bathtub style ferries, which is not where people are going anymore. They're going for catamarans. So long story, I think there's also the case that CalMac isn't overpopulated with islanders. At least it wasn't until a huge fuss was made about that a couple of years ago. So they might have a couple of island folk on it now. So it's funny how this theme is kind of coming through from what Pete was talking about is all this business of trying to get a blooming locally you know, there's all this talent, all this energy, all these possibilities, all the connections, all the things that can work. I mean, that thing that he conjured up about folk in Uist who now may not have a ferry, might not have a blinking plane, and they are sitting awash with wind energy and they cannot get, you know, yes. tomatoes in glass houses. I mean, it's utterly crazy. And we, this is I would love to see a debate animated with just perhaps a focus on this one thing, because strangely, and I'm sure this is the reason that it got so much traction online, it pulls everything in. Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, because I notice as well that, uh, that all, all the candidates said, yes, we believe firmly in decentralisation. Well, decentralisation to me would actually come down to the fact you've got to have local this is not a little Britain comment not, not a little Britain League of Gentlemen comment you know local shops and local people but it does seem to me to make absolute sense to have the people who actually live in the local communities making decisions about what happens in the local communities uh, but one one thing that's becoming clear I don't know if you noticed that Liz there seems to be the the platforms seem to be becoming defined now between the, the, the three candidates in that whom's the use of is going for a continuation of a centre-left progressive agenda, as he says it. Uh, but uh, Ash, Ash Reagan is saying, though, uh, enough of the moral mandate. Uh, we've got to take Westminster on, which Kate Forbes and Hamuser have both said they've, they've done that. Um, but I think one of the key things, of course, because it is going to come up, because funnily enough, folks, the SNP is a party which believes in independence, and anyone who joins the SNP will be voting in this, believes in independence, is the different strategies on independence, where Ash Reagan has turned around and said, well, enough of your moral mandate, you know, we, we get 50% plus one, and, and, and whatever election we stand in, we will immediately open negotiations with the UK government. Now, she was questioned on this by Laura Koonsberg on, on Sunday, says, well, what if, what if the, the UK government says no, whether it's Labour or Tory? Well, here's a bit of news. They've said no. 
It's always going to happen that way. And I think that's the question that has to be raised with all three candidates. What's the practicality of Ash Reagan's plan? And what would uh, Kate Forbes and Humza Youssef do to actually move the UK government forward if they reject the Ash Reagan concept? Uh, yes, you'd have to say that I'd imagine that where everybody would agree is that once you begin to get to a larger set percentage of folk mm -hmm. vote, you know, voting yes, and yeah. then not voting yes, but indicating yes in opinion polls, which, of course, you know, will be cited and then trashed according to, uh, you know, how it suits the argument by the UK government and unionists. But still, um, once you're sitting fairly comfortably at 60 percent, it gets very hard to be ignored. And the mechanisms of elections and, well, you'd like to have a referendum by the end of it. But, you know, that's the bit that, that shines the light. Now, then the question is how you get to 60 percent. Um, and of course, a lot yeah. of people listening to this will be throwing stuff at the radio and saying 50.1 percent is all you need. That's true. I've, we've been around this before in the sense that one wants to look over the top of this to a country you're going to be able to lead. Then the circumstances in which it's born are quite important. And mm -hmm. the, the more consensus you can lock in towards this being a thing people are for, not that you grab a little moment and a sort of opportunity, although, you know, there's nothing wrong with being quick on your feet to, to you know, to, 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 to get good timing. But still, you want to get to a, a, sense, a sense where there's a, a kind of constancy about the idea. Now, that's what I just really want to hear everybody talking about, because as we mentioned before, the idea that, you know, that independence support will just grow on its own mysteriously. Mm -hmm. A bit like, you know, sitting looking at the spring here and it's astonishing how stuff that looks like it's absolutely pan breed will suddenly begin to sprout <laughs> yeah. bits of green. You haven't even touched it and off it goes, you know. Unfortunately, I don't think independence is that kind of plant. It will, in a sense, because each passing generation becomes more, the, the total becomes more yes. So with youngsters being more independence minded, that is shifting the dial for sure. But that's going to take a wee while, folks. So in the meantime, what is going to actually generate um, an independence campaign that will start to get real traction moving on all of this? And this is where I don't really hear people using the, the platform they've got to do more than just shuffle around platitudes, I have to say. Because it's not easy to campaign. I mean, no. <laughs> I've had to no. say this to a few people, having been there myself, uh, you know, trying to get people out for various things. And I'm not saying that that's the only way of campaigning. I mean, believe in Scotland has got a very effective set of leafleting and everything. But let's be honest about this as well. Going out leafleting about independence now door to door is a brave thing to do when you're going to get all sorts of Scottish government failings thrown back in your face and people don't feel that there's any need to engage with this now because there's no sense of urgency. So it's difficult because in a way, getting people to focus on a proposition needs some kind a bit of a deadline or some sort of reason. Why today? Why not tomorrow? And that has to be provided by something like an election or something. But at the same time, you can't just allow, you know, expect the mechanism itself to kind of hurl you along. There has to be some really set out strategies. And that's where I don't hear um, and I haven't listened thoroughly. That might well be true. But I haven't heard a strategy that really kind of embraces how you create excitement and engagement. Yeah. Because those are those are necessary. 
I mean, like everyone in the business of communications and performance um, is using interest to drive what's important, not the other way around. For everyone listening to this, I guess independence is important. And so we keep thrusting more important facts at people. They're not interested yet. They're not excited. They're not enlivened by this. And somewhere along the line, we need people who are able to create a sense of excitement and confidence about a proposition and set it within a context that has enough of a sense of immediacy to pull people away from the day to day and just engage for a while on this fabulous possibility that sits in front of us. And to me, now of course, you know, that's what I just spent blooming three minutes or five minutes rambling on about this. That wasn't a 40 second answer, was it? No. <laughs> so, you know, nobody's going to it's a, it would be a tough gig. But that's why these guys are going to be paid something to be able to master all of that and not walk down the avenues of predictability, um, which are, are yawning open wide. Because why do you need to do more than just kind of, you know, stir the pot a wee bit? But but that's where I think we have to go now is try to set, set out a strategy for engagement and excitement about the possibilities of independence. And I'm not hearing it being addressed like that, I'm afraid. No, because I, I did note that uh, Ash Reagan said in her introduction she wanted to recapture the spirit of 2014, which they would all agree with, the excitement, the, the way that people were engaged. But it was all... It, to be honest about it, it wasn't the SNP that engaged me or I saw engaging people in particular. It was it was local yes groups, uh, groups that were formed. With, with, you had football supporters groups, you had doctors for Indy, you had, you know, social Yes, for Indy. And people were going out and doing it, you know. But that's and, because we were in, we were correct. in a campaign. We were know? in a campaign. I, yeah. I mean, it's not enough for people to say they want to reconjure the spirit of 2014. Sitting in the middle of March, I want to recapture the heat of autumn or <laughs> yeah. the heat of August, rather. Yeah. But you can't do it like that. You know, I mean, you have to. This all comes from a context. And the context was that there was a two year campaign. The closer it came, I mean, it, you know, many people thought it was too long, but it takes a while, uh, you know, for people to kind of connect with one another, create these groups and then decide to go for broke. Of course, doing it the first time round, it's like the great first album, second album, always a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, That's just yeah. the way life is. But you certainly give it a bigger problem where you haven't got a timeline, a course, hurdles, destinations. You know, any kind of framework for it. And I guess that's you know the other part of this is that there needs to be some sort of framing. Otherwise, there will not be any reason for people to come back to what now sounds like a very set, rehearsed, repeated set of assertions that doesn't create excitement. Yeah. Well, there'll be excitement today. Uh, or I uh, I think there'll be significant excitement today when we, we come back to the the absolute mess um, and reactionary mess that there is at Westminster. When Suella Brabham, I believe at 12.30, introduces the new uh, asylum bill, which is the, to, to do with people, the small boats. That was the, the fifth promise that Rishi Sunak made, where... They're going to stop channel migrant. They're going to remove channel migrants uh, from the UK. They're going to be banned from future entry. They're banned from applying for UK citizenship. And the Home Secretary will have a legal duty. That's Suella Braverman. Will have a legal duty to remove them to Rwanda or a third safe 
country as soon as reasonably practical. So that's 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 happening today. And, you know, it's there's been I mean, it's it's, it's hellish, really. I mean, it's just that there was a big thing. I, I listened to Radio 4 today, Justin West uh, yesterday, Web. Justin yeah. Webb yesterday. And they, they had two experts on talking about the legal position, but they led and they gave a significant proportion of it to a, a a fishing boat or tugboat captain who was out in the channel, who was then allowed or encouraged by Justin Webb to talk about this, the enormous numbers coming across and then give a personal opinion that, that the vast majority of the people he saw in these boats looked hale and hearty and didn't look like people who are fleeing from any kind of you know oppression or persecution. And that was given equal weight with someone from the Refugee Council. You know, So it was an appalling piece, I, I, I thought. Well, actually, you would have you would have loved this morning's Good Morning Scotland then, because uh, Martin Geisler tore the legs off Nigel Farage. It's oh. well, well worth hearing if you did. Oh, wish I'd heard it. <clears throat> um, I mean, you did sort of think when they introduced him, I thought, God Almighty, Nigel Farage on you know Scottish radio. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if people, Martin has taken pelters. I mean, you know, off and on, but for the mm-hmm. Kate Forbes interview, for example, because he yeah. did interrupt her a lot. Um, and I, you know, on this thing, yes, there's just a level of interruption that you can feel when you're doing it is basically creating sympathy for the interviewee. So that just even if you think mm-hmm. it's fair, there's just a line you can't cross because you begin to, you know, shift sympathy from yourself to the interviewee. But on the other hand, when you have had somebody who has got a shtick and everyone's got one and by having the stage, you've done a certain number of hustings, you know, there's a spiel that is going to come out. And it's going to take a while. And after a while, you hear somebody beginning to repeat themselves. If you don't interrupt at some points, you simply lose your audience. I mean, I I, I did interrupt, too. Um, you know, mm-hmm. because oh, I, know. <laughs> oh, I, know. I can remember this. My favorite one was if, if I'd you know asked a question, someone gives you some blah. And then I'd say, you know, some I'd ask, you know, drill down for another part of the question. And they say, well, to repeat myself. And I'd say, well, just didn't. I mean, come, just don't do that thing, because either it was crap the first time round or I'm stupid and I didn't understand it. So you're going to need to change the shtick a wee bit, mm-hmm. you know. And honestly, you can hear people just almost falling off their chairs because people don't generally do it. They let folk drone on and on and on. And it doesn't help them in the end either, because people want to hear a sharp interplay. And what you're doing at the beginning of an interview by not letting someone drone on is saying this is the length of, you know, you get that and then you don't get to repeat the thought. We don't want to move on and deepen it a bit. So anyway, that was a totally uncalled for bias thing on Martin Geisler. But today he had Nigel Farage on <laughs> God, right. Absolutely priceless. I mean, you could hear the clothes peg on his nose from the second the interview started. And when Farage was, you know, again, you can hear Farage thinking he's on a normal radio service yeah. in his life is all the kind of, you know, right, right wing populist stuff that's grown up around London or whatever, um, or a sort of worshipful BBC Radio 4 that realises, you know, that his him and his ilk have still got kind of resonance within English politics enough to require them to treat him politely. Um, so <laughs> when he was just even trying to say he came out with the thing about, you know, the 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 the, the kind of. Uh, finding people with, with throwing away their ID cards in the middle of the channel so that yeah. the fact that they weren't proper migrants or refugees, asylum seekers, wouldn't be discovered. 
And, uh, you, you know, I mean, Martin was just saying you absolutely don't know that. You don't know and nobody knows the composition of the, the folk that are coming across the channel. But what, what strikes me most about it is the whole concept of asylum seeking is not about how you enter. It's that you, you it's about how you left. Yes. So the, the reason that you're an asylum seeker is that you were forced to leave your country. The reason you might be coming to Britain is because you might have relatives here or other reasons. And this is turning the whole of that thing on its head by saying we don't care about any of that. We don't care if you were tortured. We don't care if you're going to be the subject of the next Schindler's List blockbuster film in, the, you know, in 10 years time, mm -hmm. given the uh, dignity and perseverance of your escape. We don't care about the incredibly strong family relations that could again be expounded very, very um, humanely in any kind of um, cultural context. We don't care about any of that. We only care that you were so desperate you came across in a small boat. And the notion that we will you know, be hearing later today that when you know, asylum seekers uh, uh, hear about the idea that they will be either rapidly turned around and sent back to France, which is what Nigel Farage is calling for. I'm sure the French will be really pleased to hear that. Um, when it, when people are, are are told that we under you know we are, we're led to understand, they will immediately go, oh well, that's okay then. Let's not let's not cross the channel. Now here's the thing: these folk are absolutely not stupid. They know people are dying crossing the channel, and they're still coming. Yeah. So how do you think that you know the possibility that you might end up actually also in a proper detention centre even? Because another uh, very prominent lawyer has done some calculations on the backlog, which is another thing Martin Geisler threw mm -hmm. at Farage. And um, just the business of a 28-day uh, detention before people are turned around and either sent back to France or to Rwanda or whatever, that would cu currently exceed the uh, available space for such detainees fourfold. So apparently today we're going to hear that the, uh, that the British government is planning to house these detained migrants by buying two former RAF braces yeah. in Lancashire and Essex. But th this still doesn't question, you know, tackle the fact of the backlog. Uh, it looks as if it, the, the announcement that Braverman makes will apply retrospectively so that mm -hmm. nobody gets under the wire who's currently sort of in a, in a semi-crossing stage. And again, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a debatable whether one can actually bring oneself to watch and listen to this woman. Yeah, because the crap she's going to come out with is society leeching rubbish. And it yeah. gets me so angry to think that she represents anything in Scotland because she covers areas of responsibility that we don't have any control over and is playing to an electorate and a, a newspaper industry and commentariat who are, you know, on a different planet to where most of Scotland is on this thing. And actually, when it comes back to questions of independence, this is another one. Um, because I'm not saying there won't be people who go, that's right, just send them back. Course, yes. here, you know, tour around the place, collect. Uh, get ahead of the queue. I mean, absolutely there will be. But it's not enough to have given UKIP at any point more than 3% of the vote in Scotland when it was on 20 south of the border. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it'll be horrible to listen to the, you know, cavalier attitude of it. 
uh, it, it'll get all sorts of um, objections, as it should do from lawyers and from many people in the House of Lords and the rest. Um, uh, Nigel Farage's other bombshell this morning was that he fully expects that that will basically slow things down. There's no way that any of this stuff will actually be hitting the the you know reality. Um, there'll be until after the next election, he suggests, which is where I don't quite understand how this thing applying retrospectively. I mean, this thing will the new rules will work the second she introduces it today, which means that anyone arriving off a small boat um, will be basically breaking the law, whatever the conditions of their, mm-hmm. of their escape. And um, they will be detained waiting for deportation uh, and presumably yeah. then just going through still lots of legal blockage, which still means lots more people stuck in lots more migration centres. But his prediction is, that the Tories will go into the next election promising to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, absolutely, absolutely end all of this and challenging Labour to do the same. Yeah. And that's that's where we're going, folks. Yeah, that's the game. I mean, it is that, that rightward drift that we talked about in the podcast before when you actually compare and contrast the policies of the current Conservative government with the neo-fascists in Italy. You know, you can't get a cigarette paper between them when it comes to things like this. I mean, the Refugee Council has been, I mean, it's got facts and figures about the, the, the number of people who, where they actually come from and the numbers that would be entitled to and get asylum when they actually come over here. But again, at, at that point, forgetting about it, they actually calculated that uh, the cost, if you've got 45,000 people in these two XREF bases, that's 2.8 billion a year they're going to cost. So you're going to do that. And see, the Tories, Leslie, they love a legal challenge, don't they? You know, because they'll be these lefty radical lawyers, you know, no doubt Corbynista Labour supporters or supporters of Scottish independence. You know, you've got the judges when they made decisions, so it's back to the enemies of the people. You know, it's the Islington establishment that goes to the House of Lords, you know unelected, unelected, don't know what's going on with ordinary people. And it's, it's, which, it's, which is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they're actually, yeah, but they're actually going to stand up for a, hopefully have a bit of moral Yeah, but the, the beauty of that one, uh, you know, just to, you know, kind of develop your double think, I, thinking on this one, is that it's them that's, you know, it's them that have created an unelected chamber and yes. despite promises to curtail it, have actually boosted numbers simply to try and get around these problems by increasing the size of it, thus increasing the expense of it, thus increasing the democratic freaking outrage of it being, you know, the, the second largest unelected chamber in the world outside China. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it took, but totally, this is what how they manage. If people don't stand back a bit and go, oh, but why have we got an unelected chamber that's able to kind of make big decisions about any of this? Oh, it's you guys again. Yes. You know, and that's not where this goes. It drills right down, keeps people's heads down. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably find somebody who is leading the charge in the House of Lords, which is the only thing one can hope happens, um, who has sort so of like five homes in Blinken Northamptonshire or something. And we'll get then roundly pelted for being some sort of laddie die guy, yeah. despite the fact that none of them put together have the wealth of Rishi Sunak. I mean, God <laughs> almighty, it's so depressing. Yeah. And as I say, the European Convention on Human Rights, it's got that dreaded word European in it, Leslie. 
You know, ah, well. you know, you go, you you kind of you kind of trust these foreigners, but yeah, it did, yeah. But I mean, it's it is. I mean, in all seriousness, no, it is. It's appalling, and actually, when you reflect on the fact that it's men, women, and children who are crossing the channel because there are no other legal routes unless you're from the Ukraine or Hong Kong. That's it. They've shut off all legal routes, and it, and and. Uh, that apparently the, the the government is not breaking uh, uh buckling has said the government is not setting out to break international law well they may not be setting out to break international law but they're damn well going to do it and they're mm. going to do it and they don't care you and convention on you on on refugees nah, let's forget all that business so you're going to be and if you leave the european convention on human rights look at the company you're keeping that's the company that you Tories kept when they were in the European Parliament with the dodgy far-right groups, and that's where we are. So, yeah, and it's human beings at the back of it, and that's the whole thing. It's human beings, and they, they, they just don't get it. And that's, as you said quite rightly, that's one of the major reasons we've got to get out of this rotten union. Um, yeah, because I could, they're going to play it for all the, all they can get come the next general election, and that's what it's about. Yes, rant over so, on yeah, that. That's all right. No, I just thought I wanted to let you just complete because I didn't want to interrupt you. But no. uh, you know, I'm just reminding you that this is now one hour and eight mi- glorious minutes of us in this podcast because we've sort of yeah. somewhat forgotten our uh, big contribution, yeah, yeah. Pete Ritchie there. So apart yeah. from noting that Matt Hancock has made a bit of a hips oh, of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is well, actually almost not worth, you know, but but it, yeah. it's, it is worth contributing to in the sense yeah, that what is being hoiked out is just gobsmackingly dreadful about the number of Tory MPs that were threatened with having um, investment in their constituencies stopped completely if they didn't vote for the lockdowns that um, the British government was putting through at the time. I mean, it gives you a huge insight into, you know, the way that yeah. all of this law operate. But if you needed to have that confirmed, I don't know. You're not yeah. listening to this when podcast. You, when, you, when you've actually got Fraser Nelson expressing total disgust at the WhatsApp messages that he saw and saying it was the completely hypocritical of behaviour they were in of the uh, during uh, when they were in government hosting these boozy parties uh, while telling everybody else, you know, putting panic stations on everybody else. It just makes me just about want to vomit the fact that it was Isabel Oakeshott that's. Uh, that's made all the revelations and we know the game that she's playing which is the the fact of the daily telegraph line that oh there was too strict a lockdown and uh, it was enforced too strictly you know we know the game they're playing but i'll be intrigued to see what actually happens and what the impact will be of when all these whatsapp messages are, are actually produced but it just gives an absolute insight if any more insight we need into the the corruption and the incompetence of that uh, of the UK government and Chris Seaton Harris said, "Oh, there was there was no template. You know, we didn't know what to do. There was no plan laid down for tackling a pandemic. Oh, yes, there was Operation Signet, which actually went through the whole thing and actually stressed where we were prepared, where we were unprepared, and said what we needed to do. So it's another big lie being told about the vaccine, like the vaccination rollout and putting the, 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 their arms around the care sector. You know, the big lie. But they're just going to hope that we've all got collective amnesia come the next general election. And it'll be the small boats and the poor folk that are coming across the channel that people will focus on because they're the ones that stole their steelworks and they're the ones that mean that they can't get a decent home. Yes. So, all right. Well, I'm not. I, I'm not 
going to go on my rant about uh, uh, about the uh, archaeology, a secret history. If you want to know what my rant was about, you can look at it on Twitter. But I may come back to it next week because you are talking to someone who was one of the founder members of the Young Archaeologist Club at the Dundee Museum way, way back in the day. That kind of knocks me. My street cred out the way, doesn't it, as a mod? I was a member of the Young Archaeologist Club and dotting around Souterrains and Angus and digging up uh, Neolithic. Uh, well, well, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in all that too. But let's so let's tuck that behind was lugs yes. and come back to it next time. That's it. And on that, we'll see you next week, Johnson.